Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, I chat with the Chief Technology Officer of a company on a mission to upgrade normal prescription glasses with digital virtual screens. Before that, I speak with an astrophysicist about a nearby black hole that never was. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics. Are you a scientist working in renewable energy, wearable sensor technology, display materials, or infrastructure sustainability? You have the opportunity to present your research at the world's leading forum on electrochemistry and solid-state science. Submit your abstract by April 8th for the 242nd Electrochemical Society meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, in October 2022. Visit the ECS website at electrochem.org for details about abstract submission. And join ECS in accelerating science. In 2020, astronomers led by Thomas Ruvinius at the European Southern Observatory did a new study of the stellar system HR 6819, which they concluded comprised two stars and a black hole. The system is visible to the naked eye in the southern sky, and this was touted as the closest known black hole to Earth. However, some had their doubts, and other astronomers began to look at the system in earnest. What unfolded is a nice example of how groups of scientists can both compete and collaborate to find the best descriptions of nature. To chat about HR 6819, I'm joined by Abigail Frost, who is a postdoctoral researcher in astrophysics at KU Leuven in Belgium. Abigail is lead author on the most recent paper about HR 6819, and she joins me down the line from the European Southern Observatory in Chile. Hi, Abigail. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, uh, thanks very much for having me, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about our result. Good stuff. So, so f first things first, black holes famously emit no detectable light. So, so why did Thomas Ravinius and his colleagues conclude that HR 6819 had a black hole lurking in it? So uh, the way that they were able to detect the black hole is by looking at how it was affecting um, the light of the other stars. So essentially um, their in interpretation was that there were three stars in the system. Um, there were two bright stars, um, which they could see in uh, their spectral data. Um, and they could detect a period within the system because the spectral data doesn't tell you, you know, how many uh, objects you have necessarily. It just gives you the composite, complete overall picture of the emission that's coming from the system. And so they could see emission lines that we associate with two kinds of stars. Um, one is a B-type star, which is kind of like the second hottest kind of star that we have um, and second largest. 
and one of the other stars is a BE star. And this BE star is rapidly rotating so fast that the material at its equator is being compromised and it's actually lifting away from the, uh, the main spherical shape of the star and forming a kind of disk, and we call that a decretion disk. And so they could see emission lines from these two kinds of stars in their spectra. And they were also able to detect a period of around 40 days. Now, this is where the black hole comes in. Essentially, by looking at specific signals within that spectra or specific emission lines, they decided that this 40-day period, this 40-day oscillation they were seeing in those lines had to be associated with an unseen object. And given the frequency of how those lines were moving, they could you know, estimate the uh, the mass of this unseen object, and they thought it was around four solar masses, which would make it a stellar mass black hole. And so that's how they were able to infer from the spectra that they thought they might have a black hole in the system. Okay, and and the the paper that they that they published um, describing HR six eight one nine caused a bit of a commotion, and not all astronomers agreed with their conclusion. Why why was that? I think the reason people didn't agree is because um, there are many different ways of interpreting this data. As I said, the spectral data, it gives you the information on all the stars in the system at once. You know, you can't separate it out uh, directly from the observations. The way that you can try and separate it out is by doing the different kinds of modeling, like, for example, spectral disentangling, which is one method that we use. Um, but there are multiple ways to do this. And also, because these spectra have so many emission lines, um, you can kind of pick and choose which ones you want to use within your modeling process. And so essentially what other authors did, including our team at KU Leuven, is we looked at alternative lines within the spectra and found that we didn't need a scenario with a black hole to explain the variation in the movement of these lines and the variation we saw in the data. Your former colleague at KU Leuven, uh, Julia Bodensteiner, um, came up with an alternative explanation for the observation. What was that? Yeah, so essentially by uh, looking at different emission lines within this spectra of the system that Ravinius had used, and so using exactly the same data, essentially what uh, Julia and, and the team thought was that, okay, well, this system reminds us very much of another weird system that we've seen, and this system is called LB1. And this also got a lot of uh, attention in the press. It was, you know, cited to have the, uh, the largest black hole that had ever been detected for a stellar mass black hole, around 70 solar masses. And that shouldn't really exist given, you know, the theory that we have and what we think we understand about how black holes form. And ultimately, our group had shown that that system also didn't contain a black hole. It contained another kind of strange object, the strip star. So HR6819 really reminded us um, of this system. And Julia was like, well, I think that we can come to the same conclusion here. And so what uh, she did was she performed this technique that we call spectral disentangling using different lines to Rubinius, so different kind of spectral signatures uh, from the stars. And she found that actually you could associate the 40-day period that uh, Rubinius detected in the system and associated with the black hole. You'd actually attribute that to be the period of the orbit between the two bright stars in the system, the B star and the B star. And so essentially from the same data, but by doing slightly different modeling, they were able to come to different um, kind of form two different scenarios, if you like. Um, but that was kind of the limit that could be done with that data. You know, you have that one data set, you can model it in different ways, you can have your different interpretations. But there's no way of conclusively proving um, that, um, you know, which one was uh, correct just with that data alone. And, and could you... Talk a bit more about this this strip star. What, what's going on in that process? Yeah, so the idea is that um, for the kind of binary scenario that Julia uh, came up with, essentially, is that um, 
So you have your BE star, which I mentioned was a kind of rapidly rotating uh, star. But there's a lot of questions about how the star has been spun up and how it, why it is you know, rotating so uh, fast compared to other B stars. And one uh, theory that exists is that binary interaction can spin up that star. And so the idea is that, you know, you have your stars are in a closer orbit. And at one point, because um, as all stars do in their lives, they swell as they get older and they swell into these giant uh, phases. And so one of the stars could swell into that giant phase before the other. And then it will overfill what we call its Roche lobe. So its Roche lobe is basically its... Um, the kind of region around the star within which the material can't be stolen by another star. It's gravitationally bound to the core of the star. And so basically what happens is that star goes through what we call Roche lobe overflow. It exceeds that region. And then the other star in the system is able to steal material from the other star. And so we think that potentially the BE star in the system could have been spun up by stealing that uh, mass from the other star. You know, it's gaining mass, it's gaining momentum. That spins up that star. And what's left is the strip star. You know, it's had its outer layers removed and therefore it looks much more different uh, to, um, you know, a, a typical BE star, which it would have started out as. And so, and so this is the process that um, I think is sometimes referred to as stellar vampirism or vampirism. Is that right? Yeah, that's it's a it's a kind of cute media name for sure. Yeah, it's a, and it really is just kind of sucking the material off on the other star, so it does make sense. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. And um, and so you you joined forces with Julia and um, and Thomas Ravinius as well. Uh, and others to get a better understanding of HR 6819. What exactly did you do and and what have you found? So I mentioned that that we kind of reached the limit of what we could do with the spectral data. And so we really needed to turn to other techniques which could help us, you know, determine exactly how many stars were in the system, determine where they are, and um, to help us decide between these two scenarios. Because in the black hole scenario, you have that... uh, BE star and a black hole on a 40 day, which is a very small orbit. And then the BE star is instead on a very, very uh, long orbit, very slow orbit around the two stars. But in the case of the binary scenario, both the bright stars are very close to each other. They're on that 40 day orbit. And so we'd expect to see them very close together. And so in order to uh, distinguish between the two scenarios, we have to um, check whether there was a, lo- a companion at this kind of large separation. Uh, which would agree with the black hole scenario. Um, And we also had to check how many stars are at small scales, you know, to see which of them um, was correct. And so to do this, we looked to two different kinds of data. Um, The first kind of data, which is the one that I'm an expert in working with, and it's what I kind of do most of my science with, is a technique called interferometry. And so interferometry essentially is where you use multiple telescopes um, simultaneously to observe a source as opposed to just one telescope. And the reason we like to do this is because you know, there are technological limits to how big we can build one single telescope. But the rule with observing generally is the bigger your telescope, the smaller the details um, you can probe and the, the more detailed view you get. And uh, so in order to kind of cheat this, what we do is we put smaller telescopes, you know, 100 meters apart instead of building a 100 meter telescope. And that allows us to resolve the kind of details we would get from such a lot telescope by through some uh, kind of by recombining the, uh, the signals from each of the telescopes. And so we used that data to probe the very small scales to try and identify the two stars that would be in this 40-day orbit. And we also used another data type, which is called um, imaging spectroscopy, 
And so essentially you get picture of your system, but at larger uh, scales, which, so, which would allow us to look for that distant companion. But we also get like uh, individual spectra from each of the pixels of this image as well. So it provides us with two kinds of information on the source. And so we actually got the news data first. And uh, what we could see was that there was no uh, companion at these large uh, distances, which you know was one of the requirements for the triple uh, scenario, and so we were like, okay, well, you know, this kind of implies that you know perhaps the binary scenario is correct, but we needed to directly confirm that, and that's what the interferometric data allowed us to do. So we, uh, yeah, we were able to find in the interferometric data that we had two bright sources, and um, by looking at uh, a couple of epochs of these uh, two of the data set, sorry, we were able to. Uh, see that they were, you know, indeed moving um, on a fairly fast time scale, which could be related to that 40-day period. Additionally, we were able to learn uh, something new uh, about the system as well from this uh, uh, from this interferometric data as well. And this is because um, the instrument we used, Gravity, which is one of the telescopes at the European Southern Observatory as uh, Paranel Observatory, um, is that it also gives you uh, some spectral information as well as that kind of very detailed spatial information. And from that information, we we're able to find evidence of this disk that we expect to see around BE stars. So not only do we confirm that there are two bright stars in the system, but we confirm that one is a B star, one is a BE star, and therefore it all ties very nicely into that um, binary uh, scenario that Judy proposed. And also um, this kind of shows that this system is likely to have gone through an interaction. And that's why we have these two strange looking objects um, in this system. And and so is that the last word on this system, um, or you know, in the future, could you use even, I suppose, even better observational techniques to find out more about um, about what's going on? I mean, this whole sort of vampirism <laughs> business sounds interesting to me, and maybe something that you'd like to learn more about. Yeah, we're definitely. Um... Uh, trying to learn more about the system. Um, we actually, um, again, this combined team of uh, Thomas's team and uh, the Lubin team, we've co come together again and we wrote a proposal to uh, get more data for the source with this gravity instrument, this, inter this interferometer. And um, uh, what we want to do is we want to monitor the system uh, as it goes through its orbit. We only had two kind of data points in the original uh, data that we used, but now if we get like a very nice regular monitoring of that journey of the two stars going around each other. This can enable us to get um, much more detailed information about them, in particular their masses. And this is uh, really useful because these kind of uh, parameters are very um, important when you're trying to guide binary evolution models. And binary evolution models are really the only way we have to ever look at the full cycle of this interaction, right? Because we live on such short timescales that we're never going to, you know, we can look for specific snapshots of it, but we're never going to see the whole thing for one system. So if you want to understand the physics that's involved and all of the processes, we need to use these models. But those models must be guided by observations. We need to know, you know, what happens to the star, what are the, what are the masses of the outer products, what are their temperatures, how do they look like in order to guide those models. And so that's really the next step with this is to hopefully really improve um, our understanding of the physics of these binary interactions um, by providing those important parameters to those models. I've written about HR 6819 in Physics World's weekly red folder blog. Just look for the headline, Nearest Black Hole to Earth Does Not Exist. And there's a link to Abigail's paper in the blog as well. Thanks for being on the podcast, Abigail. Thank you for having me.
Fuse Technologies is a German startup that focuses on the development of lenses for smart glasses. It has just brought out a prototype in partnership with the Chinese company JBD. I'm joined down the line from Aalen, Germany, by Frank Oliver Karetz, who is Chief Technology Officer of TUS. Hi, Frank Oliver. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Thanks for inviting me. Looking forward to the discussion. So, so Frank Oliver, TUS is a joint venture between the famous optics maker Zeiss and Deutsche Telekom. Can you tell us why the company was founded? Yeah, Hamish, I'm I'm happy to do so. So um, Zeiss was uh, working in this area, let's say, of variable um, smart glass type technologies for many years. And when I joined Zeiss in 2003, they already had a history of, let's say, five years of this kind of technology. And they tried basically everything that you can think possible in this in this in this market. And um, I also had it a little other venture before we, we had a portable VR headset and I think we launched it 2008 in the market. And then um, we always had the dream because Zeiss comes from also from the making of normal um, glasses or spectacle lenses for normal glasses. We always had the dream to bring this technology together with um, some augmenta augmentation feature and we founded at Zeiss a, a separate entity that was 100% Zeiss daughter called the Carl Zeiss Smart Optics in 2015. And we developed technology there like Zeiss always does. But then um, we had um, the decision that we might need another a strong partner there to really bring a product to market. And we were looking around for a partner that joins forces and that shares the vision of this type of glasses. And we were lucky to find um, Deutsche Telekom, who back then um, was um, thinking about smart glasses as um, something that potentially down the line can replace the mobile phone that everybody carries because you have this thing hands-free on your head. So that was their dream when they joined. And basically, they bought half of this uh, entity that we already had, the Kazai Smart Optics, and then we had to rename it to, to um, be... Um, to be a new company, so to say, but actually it was the old size smart optics just with a new investor. And we then drove this um, vision together since 2018. That's how it basically came about. And I think both shareholders are still happy with what we do here. And before we chat about um, your relationship with JBD and the prototype, can you give our listeners an idea of what smart glasses are? Yeah, I think um, we at least we at TUS, we, we see basically for this augmented reality space, we see two big segments. One is something which I say is well represented by, for example, HoloLens or Magic Leap, which is kind of a headset where you can immerse yourself into an augmented reality experience. So you have virtual object sitting in the real space, for example, a cat sitting on a table, it jumps from the table. So these virtual objects really interact with the real environment. And we... Um, in contrast, we, we come from the other side. So we come from normal glasses and try to augment them with a new feature. So smart glasses for me is normal glasses that have this added functionality that's similar to a head-up display in the car. So you have information floating in the air somewhere, but it's not interacting with your environment. It's floating in the air and is basically attached to your head. And you see information that you can see always so you should wear be able to wear the glasses all day that's our vision for smart glasses so they basically 
still have the function of normal glasses. So at helping you to correct your eyesight with prescription or protecting you like safety glasses or helping you to protect from the wind like sports glasses. And you have the added feature to see some information. That's smart glasses for us. And so this partnership um, that you have with China's JBD, um, what, what have you each developed? Um, what, what have you uh, contributed to, uh, to de developing this prototype? Yeah, so, so uh, as I said before, our heritage is basically this normal spectacle lenses, and we have integrated in the normal spectacle lens the technology to project a virtual image. And um, JBD is, um, I think, famous now for having one of the first micro LED displays in, in commercial production. And um, our technology basically is agnostic uh, to the display we use, but the beauty of micro LED technology is that it, it's very power efficient. So it has very bright um, images at very low power. And while I would say other um, AR or smart glasses makers seek for this high brightness, we seek more for the low power because we envision that you wear the glasses all day and they shouldn't be bulky, so you only have a very small battery. So this power efficiency was a big driver for us to work with JBD, and we work for, with them now for several years already. And what we now um, showed at, at Photonics West and we launched together, where we launched our partnership, is a first attempt to make this in color because normally the, the micro-LED displays you have uh, on the market as prototypes or commercial products are single color and we together now have a full color solution and i i looked at um at some of the material that you sent me about about how this works and it, it, to, to me it, it, it's almost magic you've got this um this this module i suppose that's provided by jbd and it sort of shines light into the side of, of, of a what looks like an, a normal eyeglasses lens and somehow that creates an image. How, how does that work? It, it seems amazing. Yeah, to so me. I think um, maybe we start with the, with the lens first because that's, uh, that's our contribution and we have a monolithic um, a lens that basically is a polycarbonate lens like you would also use it in normal uh, spectacle lenses. And at the edge of the lens, we have integrated um, some freeform surfaces, but that are still part of the full lens. So it's not a separate optical part. And with this freeform surfaces, we basically collect the light of a display that's in a defined position relative to the lens. So it's basically the collimating optics to get the light into the lens. Then the light is guided through the lens in total internal reflection, like it would also do in other waveguide technologies. But the beauty of our technology is that our waveguide is curved like a normal um, spherical ophthalmic lens, which makes it easier to add also prescriptions. So it runs in total internal reflection in the waveguide. And then in front of the user's eye, um, we have a combiner mirror. And to get this combiner mirror in a, in a, in a thin lens, we have it. So we have a friend, we made a Fresnel mirror out of it. So we segmented the mirror. So we have a segmented mirror that couples the light out into the eye. And then, of course, we have some special coatings that optimize see through experience versus the um, experience of the virtual image. And there we work closely together with JBD to optimize this final mirror, this Fresnel mirror to, to the specific characteristics of their display. And also we had to optimize the incoupling freeform surface to the specific characteristics of, of their display in terms of angular distribution of LED light that comes out of it. So um, 
this is our lens. And as I said, it's, it's a curved on the, on the outside, it's a curved normal ophthalmic lens where we can also add prescription in the same unit. It has the in-coupling integrated in it. Well, that's amazing. You can actually do this with a prescription lens. Yes. And, and I think this, uh, the interesting thing is that the whole lens is a prescription lens in the end, which has just inside this, uh, this Fresnel mirror and the surfaces at the edge, the freeform surfaces that help to form and guide the light into it. And to have an individualized lens, we just do, um, backside surfacing of the whole lens. So the front side is already curved, so it's part of the prescription system. And the backside, we do um, free-form surfacing like it's done in any ophthalmic prescription lab for in the ophthalmic industry. So when you order your individual glasses at a shop and you have a really individual glass, it's also done with backside surfacing machine. So it's backside surfaced and polished. And we can do that with our lens where the waveguide and the virtual imaging optics are integrated. And that's the beauty that in the end, the user has a prescription lens that's like any other prescription lens he can buy, but he has inside optics to show him a virtual image. And in our um, technology, we uh, specifically place this virtual image a little bit to the right and down of your main viewing axis so that you are not disturbed when you drive a car or do something because we want this really to be worn every day. So when a message comes up or a short message, you see it basically in the periphery and then you can glance at it and read it without being distracted. And I think it's much less distracting than, for example, looking at some uh, things in the car that are in the dashboard. So it's, as I said, it's similar to head-up display where the information is floating in the air and you don't have to um, take your eyes off what you are currently doing. So I think it's also very safe to have this information this way. So Frank Oliver, was it difficult to, to integrate your technology with um, JBD's technology? Yeah, I think because um, our, our technology... Um, we, as we wanted it to, to be super compact, we had the lens, we want to have the display very close to the lens. And that works perfectly with JBD technology if you have a monochrome display. And that's why we chose them initially. And then also they have very small displays, which makes the whole thing also very compact. But the additional challenge to what we just um, launched together is that we now have to integrate three displays somehow, which takes more space. And in this initial iteration that we showed at Photonics West, we basically use an X-Cube. I think um, your, your listeners will know what an X-Cube is. So it's a standard color mixing unit that's used for many things. Um, mainly combining different uh, LED colors to get to get white light. And here we don't combine um, LEDs for illumination, but we combine displays to get, a, to get a color image out of three separate displays. And so we had to fit this X-Cube physically into a space where before we only had a very small, thin display. So we needed to redesign, redesign our optics to accommodate this bigger cube. But the beauty is that as we have um, the in-coupling surfaces as, as part of the lens, we don't need any extra optics between the X-Cube and, um, and our lens. But, so you don't have any additional lenses to guide the light into the waveguide, but that's taken care of by the freeform shapes at the edge of our, of our lens. And when you say three, three different light sources, is that that's red, green, and was it blue? Blue, yeah, exactly. Red, green, and blue. So you have to somehow get white out of it. So um, and um, they have available in mass production a red, green, and a blue monochrome micro LED display. And we and with X Cube, it's combined to a to a color image. 
and then couple it into our waveguide. And so what are the benefits of, of doing, doing it this way as compared to um, uh, other uh, designs for smart glasses? So in, in general, I think there are two aspects. Uh, some aspects are, are related to the display and some aspects are related to our waveguide. So um, in our curved waveguide, where we have this freeform surfaces as part of the waveguide, you don't need separate in-coupling optical elements. So nothing needs to be adjusted while production. So we basically, the basic waveguide is made in an injection molding process. I think we also have some nice videos on our YouTube channel where you see the manufacturing process. So with one shot injection molding, you have all optical surfaces in place and accurate. And it's very difficult to optimize your process to give accurate surfaces. But once you have it, you can basically make one or two lenses each minute and you can scale up. It's very easy to scale up, which we think is important if you want to have a mass marketable product. So that's from the perspective of our waveguide. From the perspective of our displays, as we said, we had earlier worked with a micro organic LED displays that are color displays that are also very small. So you can do a very compact engine in color. Um, they lack a little bit of, of, of brightness um, relative to the power you have to put in. So the unparalleled um, light output versus to the power you put in of micro LEDs is a big advantage of micro LED, but there's no um, single full color RGB display yet on the market where you don't need this X cube. There are some ideas for many years, but I've not seen a fully working prototype yet of this. So to be faster to market, it's better to use the existing mature technology of single color micro LED displays and somehow combine it. But for the future, it would be better to have it in one small display, but I think that's still a few years away. And so, Frank Oliver, when will we see a commercial product um, based on this partnership and technology? So we um, we plan to, to launch a, a commercial product with the JBD technology uh, later this year. So currently, it depends how the pandemic develops. Currently, it looks good. So we plan to go to AWE in, in the US, which I think is first days of June, and, and show um, some, some joint product here. And we don't know yet what the specific specs will be, but we definitely plan to show, show a, joint, a joint product there and then go from there and make it better over time. So we, we really think it's a long-term partnership where we both benefit if we align our roadmaps. So if we know early what is possible in display technologies and they know early what is possible in the waveguide technologies, we think we can be ahead of the curve by working together. And, and what are some of the, the applications or I, I, should, I should say uses um, for these eyeglasses? I mean, I, I could imagine, uh, I mean, there's a huge range of, you know, they could be used for, for, for helping people for example, um, who are hard of hearing or, um, I mean, it just seems uh, almost endless, uh, the applications. What, what, what do you expect people to use these eyeglasses for? Yeah, we have already some partnerships that we also um, announced and that you see on our channel. So I think um, what is very attractive is doing sports with it because you, for example, if you're a runner, you see all the stats that you normally have to look on your watch and it's more difficult while running to look at the watch. We have some partners who do skydiving and um, 
I can imagine it's very difficult to look at some arm-worn device if you're falling in the skies. At least they tell us they are the experts on this. So in the sports applications, we have some partnerships. Then we have also announced a partnership where um, disabled people can control their wheelchair with the glasses and see some feedback of the status of the wheelchair. And in general, I think as we think it's an, an add-on feature to your normal glasses. So everybody who wear glasses could, for example, see their short messages from the phone without taking out the phone or get navigation advice in a, in a foreign city. So I think the opportunities are endless. And it's very easy to basically migrate applications that work on a watch to the glasses because it's a similar type of display, but you just wear it on your head and you don't have to take up your watch. And if you do something what's on the phone on the glasses, you don't have to take out your phone. So it's very convenient. And we um, think that when the developer community starts to get creative, we will see many ideas that we didn't even think of at the moment. And, and sort of looking far into the future, are there, is there a possibility for um, uh, a sort of a two-way interaction between your your eyes and the glasses in the sense that you could you could control something by by moving your eyes is that is that the 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 application with um disabled people yeah i think currently the people in the wheelchair they control with the movement of their head so we already have an imu in the glasses but with the control of the eyes it i think it's an it's it's an even better idea and we have one partner who's working on this but i can't disclose any details at the moment but definitely that's also a possibility to to have basically eye eye gestures to to control the glasses that's great. Thanks, Frank Oliver, for coming on to the podcast to talk about um, to talk about this. And um, I'll put a, a, an image or a diagram in the notes uh, of the podcast, just so uh, just so the listener can get an idea for for how this technology works. It's uh, it's really interesting to see. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Hamish. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Frank Oliver Karetz and Abigail Frost for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Blester speaks with Marcus Bueller of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology who is translating living structures into sound, and vice versa. He has created harmonies informed by the structure of spider webs, which could help uncover the secrets of spider silk. And more recently, his team translated the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus into sound to visualize its vibrational properties. This episode of Stories is called Music from Our Material World, and it can be found on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.